High school boys do some stupid things. I played football and I wrestled in high school. And um, in an effort to make sure that uh, I stayed healthy as well as my teammates, we developed a habit after school of eating concentrated orange juice. Um, it was great. It was kind of like a little slushy thing, and you could put it in a plastic cup, just get a little spoon, and just eat it. And we figured, hey, if orange juice is good for you, concentrated orange juice slushy, not watered down and diluted, has really got to boost your immune system. And so when we would get to the uh, locker room, there was a training room with a refrigerator, and somebody would start popping the, peeling the thing, popping the lid, and just put, putting it in little plastic cups for everybody. And uh, one day, as we were going about our uh, normal habits, someone had put in concentrated lemon juice in a cup. <laughs> and fortunately, I did not get it, but that friend of mine is still puckered to this day. <laughs> In some ways, as we have been going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon on what it means to be a disciple, this is concentrated Christianity. He talks about not committing adultery, but not even looking lustfully. He talks about uh, not lying in your oaths, but not lying in your normal, everyday conversation. He talks about uh, all kinds of things. And today he comes to a passage where he gets really personal in his application, talking about uh, how we deal with people that maybe, maybe it's not that we don't like them, but they don't like us. And they are oppressors or persecutors or evil people. And so we're coming to the close of a section on the Sermon on the Mount. He's talked about the Beatitudes, he's talked about the commands. Next week, we'll begin talking about the practices of disciples. Disciples give. Disciples pray. Disciples fast. But today, we look at a passage that is some of the most recognized phrases, not only in the Bible, but they've made their way into the English language. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When someone slaps you, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. You're supposed to... Love your enemy. You don't have to be a Christian to be familiar with these. The problem is, while the command was given in the Old Testament, the way that it was interpreted led to mass confusion. When the Bible talks about how we treat people who persecute us, what's the position that a Christian is supposed to take? Are we supposed to be doormats and just allow people to walk all over us? Do we have no rights? When it comes to aggression, are Christians just supposed to be completely pacifistic, opposed to military service, and not retaliating in any sense? You'll find people of all stripes answering those questions in different ways. And so to help us live out the Bible, God's timeless word that He said in the Old Testament and reaffirmed in the New Testament, Jesus begins this morning in Matthew chapter 5, Beginning in verse 38, he begins by correcting some popular perversions. I'm going to read verse uh, 38 and verse 43. We'll be in Matthew 5, verse 38 through the end of the chapter. Look at these two uh, things that Jesus says in Matthew 5, 38 and 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 43. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I think it's very interesting, and it's, it's worth noting for those of us that want to be careful in our interpretation of the Scripture, that in both of these passages, Jesus starts out by saying, by the way, you've heard this, which is contrary to his normal way of saying, it is written. It is written is a clear reference to Scripture. You have heard is a reference to the word on the street. Something that is popular. Jesus is here dealing with not a reinterpretation of Scripture, but dealing with re, uh, re-emphasizing what Scripture teaches in contrast to a popular tradition. And the truth is, popular traditional teaching can be among the most dangerous. Depends on whether you've got a good tradition or not. You see, popular teachings and traditions catch on quickly. They draw a crowd. They might seem to make sense, be witty or catchy. But if they're wrong, they're wrong. To to talk about the danger, perhaps, of uh, popular culture and popular theology, you could almost illustrate this by talking about two... uh, world-famous musicians. When I mention their names, you will say, Ah, yes, I have heard of these two musicians with the hearing of the ear. Bach and Bieber. Bach may not be platinum today. He may not be... um, selling many albums. But you mention his name, and he's known to millions. Now, you, like Pastor Reed, may have caught the Bieber fever. But my question is, who will be remembered in 100 years? My bet's going to be on the guy that's not selling many albums right now. Because he's produced something that is timelessly true and artistic. In the same way, there are perversions that happen in how we talk about Scripture that will catch on like wildfire, and in God's grace, they won't last long. It's an issue of heart. And in the same way that this Bach versus Bieber illustration seems to work, the Word of God stands true forever. But in our day and age, there will be many times that those who love it will have to clarify it for those whose entire diet consists of popular theology, not biblical theology. And so we'll see that there are three perversions that happen in this passage that we're looking at that Jesus seeks to to fix. And the first perversion is this, it's misinterpretation. Listen again to verses uh, 38 and following. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. 
he talks about this law. In verse 38, he quotes an Old Testament passage, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What does not come, uh, become clear here is that this law was designed to restrain retaliation, to vanquish vindication, because vengeance is God's, says the Lord. It's, it was cast in terms of civil justice and law. If you have a problem, if, if there is a damage that happens to you, God had provided in His law a judiciary standard um, corroborated by a third party, a lawyer, a judge, so that you were not taking the law into your own hand. That was the purpose of it. That a, uh, whatever the retribution was would fit the um, infraction that happened to you. Now, why is this so important? When something bad has happened to you, and it's happened intentionally, when you want to get even, do you stop there? Do you ever really get even? No. You go at least 1% further. than what, If they did 90% to you, you're going to do 91%. Don't mess with Texas. You know, you're going to show them. Don't tread on me. If you've, if you've messed with me, yeah, I'm going to get even plus a little bit. There's just this desire in the human heart to really not want equality, but there's a temptation for us to do more than simply get even. And so by Jesus' day and age, the law courts were not involved in personal issues of vengeance and retribution. This saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, became a uh, tooth and claw saying where everyone had the opportunity to do whatever they wanted to those that had done anything against them. The very opposite thing that Jesus had designed for it to be a protection against lawless vigilantism had become exactly that. The entire spirit of what Jesus had intended was destroyed. And this passage became an open license for personal revenge. What's your style? How do you like it? We see the second and the third perversions down in verse 43. That's the passage where he says, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But there are uh, two related perversions here that are very important. And the first is subtraction. and The, th- the second is subtraction and the third is addition. You see, when you quote the Old Testament, it's important that you actually get the quote right. Because when the, in the Old Testament it says, you shall love your neighbor, there's a very important qualification added to that. How are we supposed to love our neighbor? As yourself. You see, listen, you say love your neighbor, and I can come up with a pretty good argument that I've done it. But when you say love your neighbor as yourself, now that's clarified. That's definite. There's no wiggle room there. Are you treating your neighbor like you would treat yourself? Are you as concerned about his comfort, his convenience, his lifestyle, his values as you are about your own? And then there was an addition there that, believe it or not, you won't find anywhere in any passage in the Bible. Where does this hate your enemy come from? Now, in your Bible, depending on what translation you use, this might be kind of clear to you. In verse 43, it's very clear that Jesus is speaking. He says, you have heard that it was said, 
And then you have quotation marks, and then you have words that are in all caps, signifying that something has come from the Old Testament. So he says, you shall love your neighbor. And then it's not, end quote. And hate your enemy, end quote. But the hate your enemy part is not in caps. So Jesus is kind of saying, uh, part of this is in the Old Testament, and I don't know who made it up, but you've added other things, and now everybody's saying it. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, and that's what God wants you to do. Hate? In the Bible? It reminds us of the thing that every parent tells their children, that a little truth can make a big lie acceptable. There's a little bit of truth in there, and people will believe it, no matter how pitifully untrue and unacceptable it is. And so Jesus uh, goes on. And in in this context of addressing these popular perversions, he states a very tough teaching. We see that in the verses that we just read, uh, 39 through 42. But look at verse 44. In contrast to uh, loving your neighbor and hating your enemy, he says, but I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So in response to the eye for an eye and the tooth for the tooth, he gives all of these case studies. What do you do when someone slaps you? What do you do when someone wants your shirt? What do you do when someone forces you to march a mile? What do you do for someone that wants to borrow from you? What do you do for someone who is, let's just call it the truth of what it is, your enemy? He says, you love them. And his teaching is basically this, that for a disciple, our attitudes and our actions must line up. You can't fake that you love your enemy. You can't can't fake that you have the right attitude. We must be consistent in our our attitudes and actions. For our attitudes, uh, what he says is that his disciples won't seek vengeance. We won't be vengeful. We'll trust God with that. Listen, if we believe in a God that's sovereign, if he knows how many hairs we have on our head, does he not know about the difficult circumstances we're going to face in life? Man, that's one of the most vexing questions when you deal with difficulty. Did God know it? Was he surprised? Did he have a design for this terrible thing that's in your life? What's the Bible say? God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. And so a disciple doesn't need to be vengeful because where does his destiny and his acceptance lie? With God and not in his treatment by fellow humans. You see, if acceptance with humans is more important to you than acceptance with God, you'll fight back. But if your God's big enough and his love is sweet enough to you and his acceptance is all that you need, what happens when you face difficulty? You go, man, that stinks. I'm not going to make it worse by aggressing in return. So when he talks about our attitudes, he says our attitudes, we won't seek vengeance. And our attitude will ultimately be one of love for our enemies. And he also says that disciples with right attitudes will engage in actions to demonstrate their attitude. It's not enough to say, hey, I, I love my enemy. Show me how. And here's basically what he says in this passage. He says that disciples will react rightly to negative circumstances. And he gives a whole list of them. It's like case studies. 
He says, when you're slapped, when you're sued, when you're conscripted, or when you are borrowed against. How do you respond when the heat is on? Hey, can I? My car's not working this week. Can I borrow your souped-up, really sweet ride? I know your driving record. No! What's a disciple do? Do you stand up for your rights? Your rights are important, but are they, are they the most important thing? Can you stand up for uh, your rights in a way that violates the character of Christ? Absolutely. The Bible says one of the chief virtues of a Christian is not that they're willful, but that they're humble. And so we have certain inalienable rights, there's no doubt. But how we approach our defense of them is important. An inordinate focus on our rights usually finds its genesis from an inordinate selfishness. You messed with me? He talks about getting slapped. And actually the slap is kind of a backhanded slap. Because he says, uh, oh, if a person slaps you on your left cheek, right cheek. They're assuming, you know... uh, a Jewish man is a right-handed man, and he's slapping you on your right cheek, so it's a It's not so much an injury as much as it is an insult. You've called him a coward. You've called him a, 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 a man of ill reputation. A, a backhanded right-hand slap in Jewish culture was not a visit to the emergency room. It was an assault on your dignity. What do you do when your dignity is insulted? What do you do when your liberty is infringed upon? He talks about uh, if someone forces you to go a mile. It was common knowledge that Roman soldiers, with all of their armor, their weapons, their pack, could conscript any citizen in the Roman Empire to carry their pack for one standard mile. So, you know, I know what uh, American soldiers carry in their pack. I don't know what Roman soldiers carried. Let's just say it was 80 pounds, 100 pounds, with no uh, court of appeal. If a soldier asks you, you're carrying it. And he says, you know what? Don't just carry it one mile. Carry it two. And do it with a smile on your face. Because you know what? The soldier has conscripted you in the service of the emperor. But you serve a king who is far greater, with much better laws, that allows you to deal with an infringement of your liberty with grace. That's amazing. Because you know what? I like my dignity, and I like, I like my freedom. I like my, I like my liberty. He says, let your response be so otherworldly, so far better than this world offers, that he goes, really? A second mile? Really? Your other cheek? You don't care about your liberty? You don't care about your dignity? No, I do. But I care about my Lord even more. I serve a greater king, and I don't need to retaliate because God knows my reputation, and he's washed it clean through the blood of his son. When you have that kind of attitude, and it ushers into that kind of action, there is no circumstance in which you cannot serve with a smile. I loved it. When I was, when I was in a youth group, 
Whenever we would do mission trips, we would go to Cherokee, North Carolina quite a bit and work among the Cherokee Indian Reservation there. Our motto was, you cannot make it tough enough for me to complain. That was a great motto for a bunch of high school and middle school students. You know what? That's a great motto for a lot of grown-ups too. How much does it take for you to begin to complain? Because according to this passage, we may not like the circumstances. We're not asking people to slap us on the cheek or to take our stuff or to force us to march. But when we find ourselves in that circumstance, we can serve God with a smile and we just happen to be serving another fellow human being and being a testimony to what the grace of God can do. And so, friends, when we talk about responding rightly to negative circumstances, consider for just a a moment the example of Christ, who was obedient in all ways, and yet he was sought as a common criminal to be killed. And though he had within his power the ability and the authority to call thousands of angels, he never sought vengeance. The Bible says, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he kept his mouth shut. He never sought to defend himself. And the only way for us to be non-vengeful, non-defensive, non-grudge-bearing, sincerely loving and serving, is through the way of Jesus' way of life. When he lives in us, we can respond rightly to negative circumstances. But it's even more than just simply not acting out in an aggressive manner. Jesus also says that, that disciples initiate positive action. Disciples initiate positive action. You see this when he says you you are to love your neighbor, love your enemy. The quotation in verse 43 is love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, but I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. There's a relationship between love and prayer. Have you thought about that before? Say that again. There's a, there's a relationship between love and prayer. If you love God, you will want to talk to Him. If anyone has been around Craig Trovinger for more than 15 seconds over the last two weeks... The only way to get him to stop talking about his grandson is to take your hand off his mouth. Why? He loves him. He cares about him. And before this little tyke was outside his mother's womb, he prayed for him. Why? Because not even seeing him, he loved him. Why do we pray for our kids? Why do we pray for our spouse? Why do we pray for parents in declining health? Because we love them. There is a relationship between love and prayer. And he says, you know what? Don't just love your enemies. Pray for them. There's a relationship here. As a matter of fact, the more you love, the more you pray. Again, we see Jesus as an example. You might want to write this reference down. Luke 23, 34. It's Luke's story of Jesus' crucifixion. And as they are, the verb tense is important, and you don't catch this in the English. As they are in the process of crucifying the Lord, you remember what he says? Father, forgive them, for they know not 
what they do. Here's the problem. That verb is in the imperfect tense. So when it says that Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the imperfect sense means a continual sense. This was not something that he said one time and just, you know, hey, if you weren't paying attention, you missed it. With every strike of the hammer, with every preparation that's involved in the despicable act of crucifixion, Jesus was praying repeatedly for every single act that they did that they would be forgiven. For every blow of the hammer, for the the nail in his right wrist, for the nail in his left left wrist, for the nail in his uh, feet, for the mockery, for the crown of thorns, for the dividing up of his clothes, he prayed continually, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And the one who died for us while we were enemies with God says that we prove our discipleship by praying for those who are our enemies. He has the right to say that because he did it. And he doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself has not done. And I will admit, friend, it is crazy to imagine praying for your enemies. (laughs) To say... That guy that's always trying to stab you in the back at work, you're to pray for him. For that crazy ex, whatever, ex-husband, ex-wife, that delinquent child that has spurned all of the good teaching and stuff that you've tried to push upon them, you love them. Here's the thing that's kind of crazy. Perhaps the best way to have the right attitude is to pray for them. How can you go before God and stand beside them in prayer and not against them and not have your heart changed? I guarantee you, whoever is the person you have the hardest time with, whoever that person is, if you will pray for them, don't be surprised when the relationship changes dramatically. Because God changes people's hearts through prayer. You may sense their wickedness, their hatefulness, their unfairness, perhaps even their ungodliness. So, you know, we don't love them because of what they do. As a matter of fact, that's why it's really a struggle. What they do makes it hard for us. We love them for who they are. Sinners, created in the image of God, fallen and far away, just like we were before He shed His mercy his grace and his forgiveness upon us. And perhaps in how we respond to that person who maybe is very far from God, the gentleness of um, our response may be the thing that will win them, perhaps even without a word. Earlier in the Beatitudes, Jesus talked about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Being persecuted for righteousness' sake certainly isn't fun, but it puts us in league with the prophets They were persecuted for doing the right thing. But blessing, loving, and praying for those who persecute you, well, that puts you in league with Jesus. And that's rare company indeed. Thirdly, Jesus provides for us some very challenging comparisons in verses 45 through 47. He says, do these things, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to to rise on the evil and the good and sends 
his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He begins by essentially calling us out and saying, we are compared to our Father. Verse 45, he says, do these things so that you may be sons of your Father. This may be in verse 45 um, is in a, a tense that indicates a once-for-all thing that has happened. He's not saying, be good and you'll earn sonship. He's saying, prove your sonship by being good. He's not saying that there's anything that you can do to make yourself a son, but there are things that you can do to prove that God has worked in your life. So why do we love our enemies? Because God loves his enemies. And like father, like son, there should be a family resemblance. He loves all. And he says this very clearly in verses in verse 45. It says that he causes, uh, and the way that it says is his son, not the son, not S-U-N. He doesn't say that he causes the son to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's his. So tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're enjoying your cup of coffee and you see the sun, it's not just a meteorological condition. God has sent his sun to shine upon you. 40% chance of rain today. When it happens, it's not the rain, it's his rain. Now, rain's not a bad thing in an agricultural community. The sun and the rain is how life is sustained. It's how crops grow. And it says that God gives his blessings to all because he loves them all, regardless of merit, not dependent upon their loveliness or attractiveness, but by his character. He is determined to love rebels. The Bible's capitalizing on the fact that you will imitate someone, whether it's your father whether you set your standards a little lower and it's just kind of keeping up with other people. And that's who the other comparison is to. We're compared to other people. Verse 46, it says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? That phrase, what more are you doing? It's implied that followers of Jesus will not act like the world. So in your relationship with challenging people, friend, let me just repeat the Bible's question. What are you doing by God's Spirit that is different from the rest of the world? Are you simply loving the people that are like you? Because I don't know that that's love as much as convenience. If we're not following Him... We're not following our Father in His example of love. We'll be following the world's pattern. You see, Pharisees and scribes always thought of themselves as much better than others. They had big noses through which they could look down at everybody else that lived. But the truth is, they were really no better than the people that they despised. Did you see the comparisons that Jesus gave? He said, what better are you, scribes and Pharisees, than tax collectors? What better are you... uh, scribes and Pharisees than Gentile pagans. You see, everybody draws walls. And the problem is, once you start doing that, it's not enough to just say, you know, I'm going to love Jewish people. 
Because now you got some Jewish people that are tax collectors. They're traitors. So I'm not just going to love Jewish people. I'm going to love good Jewish people. Well, what's good Jewish people? I'm going to love scribes and Pharisees. And then your love gets so small that you can fit it through a keyhole. Because you've drawn so many walls and you've made your love so exclusive that you're not going to give it to anyone that is one shade different than you are. And that's not good. They'd narrowed down the definition of a neighbor to those they already preferred and approved. Tax collectors and pagans, not welcome. John Broadus, one of the founders of Southern Seminary, said this, In loving his friends, a man may, in a certain sense, be loving only himself in a kind of expanded selfishness. Are you so selfish with your love that you can only cheer, that you can only love people who cheer for the same college football team. I'm not going to love a Gamecock fan. It happens. Oh, I'm not going to love a Methodist. They go to a different kind of church. And so he challenges us, how are we acting like our Father, and how are we acting differently than other people? And finally, in verse 48, he shows us the godly goal. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Does that make anybody want to give up? Good grief! We have, we have some men here. I don't know if you can call it a hobby because they're not very good at it, but they, they golf. And, um, you know, uh, we have a couple. I, I'll do this. It's probably easier for me to do this because these are my brothers. Church league softball. Okay? What are the statistics when it comes to getting hit? You know, you walk up to that batting box and, you know, kick the clay off and get ready. And what do you think while you're standing in the batter's box? I'm going to hit this ball so hard the skin's going to come off. And you're not hiding in the dugout going, oh my goodness, it's my turn to bat again. I'm terrible at this. I get out 75, 80% of the time. Man, if you, if you get on base 25% of the time as a professional, you're going to win a trophy. You talk about golf. You know, you, you watch these championships and how many, you know, hundreds of uh, hit strokes are there. But if you ask a pro, you know how many, how many golf balls they hit exactly as they intended? Maybe two or three. Now, they hit much better than you do. But they have an idea when they get there exactly how they're going to hit it and it only happens a very small percentage of the time. But yet... Every time we get up to that tee, and every time we get into that box, the truth is, what are the statistics? It ain't going to be good. You're going to get out, and the ball's not going to land where you want it to land. You might have to put your, your big boots on and go back in the bushes to, to find that little golf ball. But every time, even though most of the time we don't do anywhere close to what we think we were going to do, we never give up. We read a verse like verse 48, Therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We go, I quit! It's impossible! Well, it's impossible to have a perfect batting average too. It's impossible to hit every golf shot like you want. And the point here is this, is that there is a grace here that leads us to the perfections of God. Be like God. Be perfect. He's the only one that is. And the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not simply for us to practice restraint, to make concessions, to be kind, but to remind us of God's complete, balanced, and bold beauty. That He alone is perfect, 
He is perfect perfection. He's perfect perfection. It's not designed to make us quit, but to lead us to an overwhelming sense of our inadequacy, of our moral bankruptcy, to a beatitude attitude that shows us our need of a Savior. How are you going to do verse 48 on your own? You need a Savior. I need a Savior who can enable us alone, empower us with a power to love with His kind of love. Friends, we should never be satisfied with a halfway obedience in our love. Oh yeah, I kind of sort of love, like the scribes and the Pharisees were. They never allowed the law of love to penetrate their heart of stone. You see, in their day, these were, after all, the scribes and the Pharisees. The Scripture was fully known, but only partially taught and practiced. May that not be true of us. Today, if we realize how far away from the Lord that we are, how far from being perfect you are, that's good news because there's hope for you. For you that have followed Christ for a long time, the opportunity to repent and say, God, thank you for being gracious and giving me a chance to start over. That's what this message is about and that's what this invitation is for. Pray with me, please. God, we pray that you help us to love our enemies as you loved us and sent your son to die on the cross for us. Help us to take this uh, very challenging truth and to live it out in our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.